This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to a special bonus podcast brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. We would like to share a conversation about the ways we can develop our confidence through the practices of mindfulness and meditation with Be Here Now Network teachers Ethan Nickturn and Sharon Salzberg. If you are looking forward to a fresh talk from one of our guest teachers, don't worry, you will be getting a new talk at the usual time. In the meantime, we invite you to enjoy this look at how we can move away from the traps of our ego and walk through life with clear perspective and skillful action. This conversation was originally aired on the Road Home podcast with Ethan Nickturn. You can find the Road Home podcast in our podcast player, along with Sharon Salzberg's podcast, Meta Hour, for insight on integrating the wisdom and practices of Buddhism into our lives. Don't forget that these podcasts are brought to you by the Be Here Now Network, which is only made possible through your continued support. Visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate to find out how you can support these podcasts, along with all of the retreats, live events, and daily content made available by the Be Here Now Network. It's really wonderful to be back with Sharon. I consider Sharon a friend and a mentor and one of my teachers and uh, the best wedding officiant of all time. <laughs> um, not my best wedding officiant of all time. If you, you may have had good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so we're here. The topic is confidence. And uh, I'm super intrigued by this topic. Um, the The... Buddhist tradition that I've done the majority of my training and study and teaching in Shambhala, this is a huge topic. 
and it's also, I think, a topic in, in most mindfulness or Buddhist traditions. Um, so that's one um, interesting dimension, I think, of this weekend is looking where and how mindfulness teachings and Buddhist teachings can work with this uh, development of confidence. Um, but I also want to say from a sort of spiritual or Eastern spiritual standpoint, this might be a very controversial topic in some ways. And, and from the state of the world right now, this might be a controversial topic in the sense that when we say confidence, it may bring up for us uh, thoughts of like ego or egocentricity or famous narcissists we know. I don't know if anybody knows any people who might be diagnosed with not narcissistic personality disorder in, in our world, but, um, you know, th there is often this sense when you're in yoga or mindfulness or, or Buddhist circles that the whole problem is this sense of self and this sense of certainty about oneself. And if we could just disappear, everything would be better somehow. Right. And you may have even heard teachers or peers or friends say when you were sharing something about your struggle with confidence, has anybody ever shared that in a spiritual or yogic or dharmic space and said, oh, that's just your ego. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a tricky conversation here. And what I want to say is that the, the sense of having a self is not the problem. Right. And, and the, the sense of having a solid self that always needs to be defended at all costs is actually the problem that, that Buddhist teachings point out. So when we talk about confidence, we could actually say that the problem of ego from a Buddhist perspective, if we want to use that word, is a total lack of confidence. And so we're going to get into how, how all of this works, right? And um, there's, there's a classic teaching that we're going to talk about uh, tonight to enter us into this practice and, and exploration, um, which it, in every version of the teaching, it has the same number, but it's called different things in different traditions or different translations. So it's on the does anybody remember the, the other part of the title of the weekend? Eight vicissitudes. Have people heard that phrasing before? How many people saw that and knew what it was immediately? I'm just wondering. Okay, great. Good. We, we, have, we have lots of new stuff to share. Um, so I've seen that translation, especially in teachers coming from the insight or Vipassana or the, the various Western lineages that come from what's called Theravada Buddhism originally, which is literally could be called old school, um, which is always the coolest 
school if you're <laughs> it's true in tibetan buddhism too that the old school in tibetan buddhism is called the nyingma school and that's a pretty cool school too so being old school is cool um in tibetan lineage teachers i've heard translate this as either the eight worldly concerns or the eight worldly phenomenon uh have people heard either of those translations Eight worldly winds, I've heard it translated as too. And that's sort of an interesting, the, the use of the term worldly is kind of interesting from a Buddhist standpoint, because again, this notion of if our goal is to, um, if our goal is to reject the world, then the problems of the world would be the things that we want to avoid. And there was, in, in classic Buddhism, there was this real dichotomy, if you read any of the original historical Gautama Buddha's teachings, there's this real dichotomy between being a true spiritual seeker and being in the world. Like, one is better than the other, more professional than the other. And if you're really going to wake up, you have to leave the world behind, right? So that that's a, that's a tricky... Um, dichotomy because um, one, is anybody here trying to leave the world behind? <laughs> yeah? You came to the wrong place. You're in the world. <laughs> so I, I think it's important for modern practitioners to look at whatever teachings we're looking at as ways to be awake in the world. And if your world means a cave or a monastery or an ashram, that's wonderful. If your world, like me, means North Brooklyn and how to deal with a really cute two-year-old kicking you, that's wonderful too. But I like the, for a couple of reasons, I like the translation of the eight vicissitudes about this teaching that we're going to talk about because it doesn't necessarily separate out whether you're a worldly practitioner or a retreatant or a yogi. Um, it's just every human being faces these. And also... Um, It doesn't look at them necessarily as defects, but just places that we go. The notion of these eight vicissitudes is that they are experiences we all have, but they can also be traps. And the way I've been thinking about it is th this is sort of the Buddha's early teachings on how we can get trapped in a confused view of um, what confidence or insecurity mean. Right. Does anybody feel like you've had false confidence in the past? Yeah, so it's interesting when that happens. Like I thought... I thought I knew how to do this. So it's also interesting to think about what your definition of confidence is. If you look that up in the dictionary, 
trust is the simple, like to be able to confide in oneself means to be able to trust. I thought about this a lot and thought about um, sort of uh, both Buddhist teachings and, and more modern scientific and psychological teachings that often we experience confidence when we feel supported, you know? Like if somebody we trust says, you got this, usually that's helpful, right? To our sense of, I can hold my seat, I can deliver this speech, or I can deal with this person, or I can meet this moment. So confidence often comes in a support structure, right? The way I was thinking of confidence, my definition was, in addition to self-trust, it's the internalization of a support structure. In other words, there's a feeling of, I can do this as if your coach or your Dharma teacher or your good enough parent, to borrow from Winnicott, or um, your homie, to borrow from my teenage years, is sort of in your heart and mind. The thing about the eight vicissitudes and the reason they can be traps of confidence is that they are external marks of feedback. In other words, the world is holding something up for us and saying, this is the situation, right? So understanding the relationship, I think, in, in meditation terms and Buddhist terms between what we mean by internal and external is really important. So I just want to go through these eight vicissitudes. It gets a little simpler because there are four pairs. And for each pair, there's a, there's a sort of positive moment of feedback that the world gives us. You could say we hope for if we're normal humans. And there's a, a negative or more painful moment of feedback, which, which you could say we maybe resist or have some natural fear towards. I like to think of these as sort of the most outer to the most intimate. So I'm going to work in that way through these four couplets. The, the first one that it's the Buddha said, everybody wants this vicissitude is fame, good repute. It's interesting that the term of people who studied with the Buddha is the same term for a social media star nowadays, follower followers. They've even done studies. I think um, Judson Brewer did a study about um, how they can start to tell how much time somebody spends on social media. I think they used Facebook based on activity. And I think it's called the nucleus accumbens part of the brain, right? So we all like, like there's something about somebody liking what we're doing and that number increasing that just gives us a moment of like, I matter. Okay, I can be here.
some of us don't want fame. But is that true? It's interesting. Or do you just want fame as an introvert? It's an interesting question. That's why I became a writer, by the way. Then I got into this teaching in front of other people thing, and I was like, okay, this is confusing. <laughs> I wanted people to know my name, not my face. So I had to figure that part out. So what's the, what's the more fearful or difficult part of the couplet of fame? It's, it's, this is an interesting question, and this is where I've heard different translations. One is infamy, negative fame. to be famous for the wrong reasons. But I like this other translation more because it's not necessarily to be famous for the wrong reasons. I like the translation insignificance as the couplet of fame. Not mattering. Nobody shows up at my funeral. So that was that's one of the most Buddhist, um, my favorite Buddhist lines from the founder of the Shambhala tradition, Chogyam Trungpa. He said, "You can't attend your own funeral, but wouldn't it suck if nobody showed up?" So these we're blown back and forth in our world between these vicissitudes and. I just sometimes wonder what the technological aspect of that is going to be in, you know, 15 or so years when my daughter's 17, 18, just like how the feedback loops work with, you're doing great. So then the next pairing is um, praise which means individual reminders. You're doing great. And perhaps that's from people who really matter to you. Right? Who doesn't want, does anybody not want praise? I mean, you can say, no, 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 no. But even in that moment, there's a little bit of pleasure, isn't there? So just to even be able to do, oh, no, 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 it was nothing. Thank you. So a kind of positive feedback from, indi from individuals. That's the way I think of this as being more intimate, that you matter, you're doing good work. And that gives us a moment of confidence. All right. I can stick my chest out a little bit more. I can show up. All right. What's the flip side of praise? Blame. Yeah, that, that, that fight that happened on your summer family vacation, that was your fault. You, why did you say that thing? I had a fight-free summer family vacation. That was very nice. But it's not always that way, right? And there's a blame factor. And who wants to be blamed for painful circumstance or for confusing actions, right? So we swing into that vicissitude too. And again, from either perspective, 
whether these are called the vicissitudes or the worldly concerns, if we are going to exist in the world, we're going to meet these moments. They are the outer manifestation of existing in a world with other sentient beings. So the, I think it keeps moving kind of inward to the core of our identity, the third couplet. You could say the third couplet of hope and fear. which is either described as success and failure or gain and loss. And I, I read one commentary on this couplet that it's, it's really about our experience in the material world. Your home floods or you get a new home. You look at your bank account, there's more or less in there than you thought. Very rarely more. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that it tends toward, do you notice that? Is that your experience too? The vicissitudes tend to move in that direction. Other mindfulness thinkers have talked about why that is in terms of this thing called the negativity bias which is that our embodied nervous system is, it, it's basically a threat sensor. So it's designed to pick up threats to survival more than like, oh, everything's awesome. So there might be more money in our bank account, but we don't even notice because we're only there when the oh shit moment happens. But gain and loss and how we move through the world the material world especially, just constantly feeling like if I get a little bit more, I'm safe, I'm good, I can be here, I'm confident, I have the support I need, and if we lose, everything is lost. And the, the catastrophizing mind is really amazing, isn't it, on that front? That rabbit hole is really interesting. And then you could say, the way I think about it is the last couplet is kind of the most intimate to the human body, the human mind, and really the human nervous system, which is meditatively, I think is the subtlest, is pleasure and pain. You notice this in, in New York City, that, that, that first day of real spring, when people's bodies are just like receiving more light, there's more warmth, there's more exposed arm and leg skin, and it's pleasant. And everybody's sharing like a pleasant experience. And that first day in November, when you know you're in for like, I mean, who knows what's going to happen as, as climate, the climate crisis proceeds. Maybe just the whole thing gets scattered more and more. But that, just that moment of physical discomfort. You know, and it's this is pointing to how we just lose a sense of being able to deal, being able to 
trust ourselves in painful moments. So the kind of outermost layer of the Buddhist teachings on working with confidence is noticing these vicissitudes arising. And for me, and maybe this is the last thing I'll, second to last thing I'll say before turning it over to Sharon, is um, part of this, I think, the exercise in confidence and working with the eight vicissitudes is developing more friendship with how fickle reality is. Maybe an exercise we might try tomorrow. How many people have worked with the, uh, from the classic Buddhist teachings, the, the second instruction of, of the four mindfulnesses or sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness where you work with labeling pleasant painful neutral and you can work with that on a thought or emotional level but usually just working with bodily sensations it's just so fickle it's just like shooting back and forth not in a situation of chronic pain and probably not as a few of the younger folks have told me in a situation of like the drug Molly, probably get a few extra moments of just pleasure or just pain in those situations. But the, um, the praise blame one and the uh, fame insignificance one and the forces of the world know this, you know, the, um, Amazon figured something out very early. And I've thought about this because Sharon and I have had a lot of conversations with this. Other book websites update sales rankings like weekly. Because honestly, who needs to know if your sales rank changed over an hour? It doesn't actually affect anything. But here's what I think they figured out. If they get the writers and the writers' families who care about their success uh, and their um, uh, fame and insignificance to go back to the site multiple times a day, those people might buy more stuff. Right. So we learning to work and make friends with, with a world that's incredible and an experience of the world that's incredibly unstable, incredibly windy. That's why I like calling this the eight worldly winds. Like it's just blowing all over the place. And these hope and fear moments, these pleasure and pain moments are just so fickle. And to be able to start to work with what would developing confidence and trust mean within that um, It's such a beautiful exercise to try to take on. And the other thing I want to say about that is this is such an important discussion, in my humble opinion, for mindful people to be having. Because if we buy in to the notion that 
people who are trying to practice mindfulness and metta and loving kindness and compassion and then actualize those practices in the world, that those should not be confident people, that those should be people who are just kind of disappearing, like maybe, you know, oh, you know, I I don't want to be in the art world because it's too narcissistic. That's something I've heard from thousands of artist friends at this point. I don't want to be a musician because it's too narcissistic. I don't want to go into politics because all these people are so full of themselves, which I don't actually think is true. Um, what we're actually doing is sacrificing the activities of the world in which mindfulness could flourish to really confused values. So I, I do want mindfulness practitioners to become the most um, praised people. Not egoically praised, but to have those values move deeper into how this world works. So I think it's really time to stop ceding this territory mostly ironically to, or not ironically, to people who have a similar embodiment to me. And to really say, okay, let's, let's look at how Dharma practitioners, mindfulness practitioners could really embody values and show up in the world and say, I can deal with the vicissitudes. Yeah, sure. I checked my Amazon ranking a couple weeks ago. There's more to confidence than that. There's also the question of like, is this helping people? Is this bringing greater virtue into the world? But I think this is such an important discussion for us to embrace rather than um, disappearing from. Because otherwise it really will be the narcissists. Not saying we don't struggle with that too, but it really will be the unaware narcissists who run everything. So those are my, my thoughts. I'll get off the soapbox now. And <laughs> when I went to India to learn how to meditate, it was the first night of my first retreat when the teacher, who was S.N. Goenka, said, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. So coming together in a gathering like this is not really about the Buddha or about Buddhism. It's about ourselves. And yet for me, you know, when I went to India, it was quite some time ago, um, or Ethan with his background, you know, the languaging of Buddhist psychology comes most readily to me. And so I will often say, well, according to the Buddhist psychology, this or that. Um, you know, that's the languaging. That's, those are the metaphors, the imagery that I'm most used to, but this is really about some kind of universal truth. And most profoundly, it's about ourselves and being able to have a better life than perhaps we've experienced before. And this is about, I think, perspective, and it's about skills. Now, perspective in that, I think, just as human beings, in a culture, we tend to have been fed many myths um, often many distortions about where happiness is to be found, how alone we really are, where strength is to be found. 
And it takes something to step back and take a look and say, well, is that actually true? You know, I harbored that grudge for so long thinking it was making me safe and look at how it really was making me feel because we're paying attention. Or very commonly, I was taught that love or compassion are these stupid kind of sentimental qualities and people just take advantage of you and you won't, you lose your edge, you lose all intensity. But look at that. When I actually look at the experience without so many filters and um, look at what I found. That's the kind of strength that's incredible. That's very different than what I had been believing before. And so uh, it's not about forcing yourself to feel one thing or another, but it's creating the environment of discovery so that we can see for ourselves. And then there's certain skills. Like, what do I do when I thought you were going to talk about Amazon reviews? Oh. I kept waiting for that. That's another thing. Um, <laughs> you know, what do I do when <laughs> I make the mistake of looking at the reviews? Um, uh, because those um, polarities of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, that's life. You know, there's no one who experiences only pleasure and no pain. So what do we do when the world falls apart for us or we just don't get what we want or we're dissatisfied? Or what do we do when it's delightful and it's wondrous and we don't feel we deserve it? And we can't even take it in. Like, what do we do when one or another of those events or those, those feeling tones associated with events happens? Because they will every single moment. And so it's both a generation of perspective based on our own clear seeing and its skills of how to work with and deal with just the range of what we go through as human beings. And that's really why we gather here together. And those um, imparting of those skills and experimenting with those skills is, you know, is my main purpose in coming to an experience like this and sharing it with you. So um, in the Theravada tradition, the old school, the cool school, the one I belong to, um, uh, when they talk about the eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame, and fame and disrepute in that order, <laughs> um, usually they talk about a healthy relationship with them as being the development of equanimity. So I was intrigued and really fascinated with um, this topic and with Ethan's presentation to hear it in terms of confidence, you know, that if we get attached to only pleasure and no pain, for example, or only praise and no blame, then that's a kind of boost, but it, it is very temporary and uh, breakable. It's very fragile because you don't know what's going to happen next, right? And uh, to think of another kind of confidence coming from, really from equanimity. So equanimity is a tough word to understand for us. Uh, my first teacher also, S.N. Goenka, used to go around saying all the time, uh, be equanimous, be equanimous, be equanimous. And we used to whisper to one another, is that a word? <laughs> what does that mean? I never heard that before, you know? Uh, and even in, in its form of equanimity, it 
is strange for us because it can imply, easily imply indifference or coldness or not caring, but it really means balance. Not balance of like holding two things together and not, no, not letting anything new emerge, but a balance that comes from spaciousness, from perspective. Like, yes, I would rather this not have happened and it's part of life. You know, so often equanimity is talked about as a companion to compassion. I care about you. I will do everything I can to try to help you. And the truth is I'm not in control of the unfolding of events. I don't control this universe. And so even as I try, I don't need to be frustrated and impatient and demanding. I can do it from a different sense of space. And if you want to inquire about which way of being has us hanging in there longer and sustaining an effort, it's so clear that the attachment, needing things to be a certain way, needing to be in control, which we aren't, it's not going to help us to be generous, to be caring, to, to be giving. It's only going to sink us in the end. So equanimity, that sense of spaciousness or or understanding is, is actually a great, great strength. Um, it really does not mean coldness or indifference, but it's that understanding. There's even a, a little bit of poignancy in that understanding. Like um, I once said to a group, I feel that if I were in control of the universe, it would be a lot better a world. And somebody in the group said, are you sure? And it took about less than 10 seconds. I said, I am really sure. <laughs> it would be a lot better world. Even just today would have been a lot better world. But I'm not. It doesn't mean there's nothing I should try or do or I need to, you know, Ethan's words disappear. It's not that at all. But if I feel I should be in control and I'm thwarted in that constantly, that's when we give up. You know, that's when it's all too much. So being able to recognize these vicissitudes and having a, a better relationship to them based on wisdom will give us that greater sense of spaciousness, which does lead to equanimity. And, and it leads to, I can see it, you know, although somehow I usually articulate it, to a kind of confidence because we're not so afraid all the time. So one of the reasons I thought Ethan, I thought Ethan was going to go toward the route of talking about Amazon reviews is because um, of those dualities or of those pairs, the set that I usually like to talk about the most is praise and blame. Because anytime you say something, you make something, you create something in this world, some people will like it and some people will not. And it's really powerful to be able to not land your sense of integrity and who you are and how well you've done completely into someone else's reaction because we can't control that. I once, I wrote a book called, um, and many book stories about praise and blame. Uh, I once wrote a book called Real Happiness at Work and I made the mistake of reading the Amazon reviews. And somebody wrote a review which said, don't trust her. She's never worked a day in her life. And I thought, 
I literally work 364 days a year usually. I usually take my birthday off. This year I didn't. Um, I thought, she never worked a day in her life. You know, like you could say, honestly, I've never had a corporate job. Or as someone pointed out to me, I've never had a boss. <laughs> you know, but she's never worked a day in her life. It's like, like, but what can you do, right? I thought, should I write to Amazon? You know, demand they take it down. And I thought, well, that's silly, you know, like, we're not in control of the unfolding of events. And, you know, just like Ethan said about negativity bias, if there were 50 great reviews on that same page, I didn't happen to notice them. I don't know what happened to them, but my eye just went right to, she's never worked a day in her life. Well, the story I usually tell about that, um, about praise and blame, is when my first book, which was called Loving Kindness, came out, which next year is the 25th anniversary. Um, if anyone has like the original hardcover version of it, you'll see on the back, on the blurbs, that it took me a very, very, very long time to write that book. I never actually thought I could write the book, and I finally did, so it was like a huge accomplishment. But somebody, um, it's either Jack Cornfield or Stephen Levine said, uh, we've waited a long time for this book. And the other one said, in this long-awaited first book, and I had a friend who wrote something like, Sharon Salzberg has finally given us <laughs> the result of her years of love. And I thought, I made the publisher take off the finally. I said, that's too much. So <laughs> it took me a very long time to write that book. And uh, just after it came out, I was in California, and I was having lunch with somebody, and she said, oh, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way, it's like, it's just like being with you. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was so thrilled. I thought, wow, there's probably not a more beautiful thing you could say to someone that wrote a book. And I was so excited that that night I was having dinner with a whole other group of people, and I brought up the comment. And someone at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading your book. doesn't sound anything like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay, you can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner, <laughs> or you could take a moment and remember, they're talking about the same book that was coming from whatever was motivating me with whatever level of skill I could put into it. One person took it one way, another person took it another way. And I noticed the difference. I would never want to apply we're aiming toward a life where we don't notice the difference, so we don't care. Of course we care. But how much do we care? I mean, there are things that happened, not that particular story, but there are things that happened around my efforts with that book that, looking back, could so easily have made me give up writing altogether. So easily. So perspective is a great strength, right? That sense of, Okay, maybe there are things I need to learn. Maybe the level of skill was not that great or whatever, but there's nothing we can do that will please absolutely everybody all the time. It's not in the nature of things. You know, so it doesn't mean we dismiss all feedback or we don't care about what people say, but if we are defining ourselves and our worth, our complete worth and our right to be alive by the way someone responded 
to our book, we're in big trouble. You know, I haven't seen that woman since who said, nothing like you. Um, but I think of her sometimes. <laughs> you know, so it's that sense of there's some kind of peace. And it's fascinating to me to think about it as confidence, where we're not so afraid all the time. We, we do pay attention. And we have, along with that attention and learning and, and understanding, we might have places to grow and change still we can have some sense of the rightfulness of our being, no matter what those Amazon reviews say. So I have a book coming out next June. Remind me not to look at any reviews. You remind me. <laughs> um, because you just look at the reviews confidently. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's another alternative. Oh, boy. You know, so it, it's going to come our way, whatever. We're having a fine day, and something happens, and, and we're not so happy. Um, there's always pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. So we want to be aware. We want to be connected. We're not cutting off, and we're not denying it, but that demand that things be other than the way that they are is going to cause us tremendous suffering all of the time. And so we want to disentangle from that. It's not that it won't come up, it will come up. But we can recognize what's going on and come back to the way things actually are. I'm not in control of the universe. Or as the Buddha put it, um, he said, there's always blame in this world. And there's a, a really sweet story I've always liked about it, about that saying, uh, where they said that in the Buddha's time, this man came to the monastery to learn something of the Buddha's teaching. And the first person he came upon was this monk who had taken a temporary vow of silence. And so when he was asked, he didn't say anything. And then the man got really furious and he stomped away. So the same man came back a second day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's. And this particular monk was very learned, not only highly accomplished in his practice, but very learned in the theory. So when he was asked, he responded with a very elaborate theoretical description, and the man got really furious, and he stomped away. So the same man came back a third day and came upon a third disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda, and it said that Ananda having heard what happened on the first day and what happened on the second day, was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man got really angry. And he said something like, why are you treating such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people went off to see the Buddha, and they said, oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. So again, we're not trying to make believe we don't care or you know, cut off from all feeling. It's not that at all. But if we can remember that and not derive our sense of fundamentally who we are from a need to have 100% of people 
say it's the best book I've ever read, then, then we are living with a kind of wisdom that will give us a lot of strength. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.